All right, let's go to the scripture reading for today. We're landing on Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 12. I'll go ahead and read this for us. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness, goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing in our series in the book of Hebrews, and we land on what I believe is one of the most challenging passages in all of the Bible. So, welcome to Sunday. <laughs> um, if you've never heard the term uh, apostasy or an apostate before, this passage is about that. This is the classic text that addresses the topic of apostasy. And here's a theological definition from a theologian named Michael Kruger. An apostate is someone who seemed to be a believer, was part of Christ's visible church, participated in the community of faith, and then later rejects Christ, turns away from sound teaching, and leaves the church. And that means permanently, permanently leaves the church. And this was a serious problem during this time, hence you know, the author's emphasis here, as the apostle is writing to, as a Jew, writing to fellow Jewish Christians who are tempted to turn back to the old ways of Judaism, to temple worship, and, and he's warning them against that because it's beginning to cause some people to drift away entirely from Christ. They're becoming apostates. So he issues this warning along with five other warnings in the letter of Hebrews, by, and which, by the way, uh, is an indication of how much this, this apostle loves this church. Um, warning someone is a huge component of loving someone, right? Uh, my kids are about to go back to school, and I wish my conversations with the, with the kids would be more so, aren't you excited, you know, new friends and teachers? But actually, it's more divided. It's more 50% excitement, and the other 50% is warnings. Um, don't get too close to people. Um, if someone's coughing, Run for your life. You know, just series of you shall nots, you shall not. And that's, that's my way of loving them, right? 
uh, our culture tends to see warning in a different, especially religious ones, um, in a different light, as restrictive, as, as suppressing and limiting. Uh, it's far from an act of love, because you know, love should instead liberate a person, right? Love empowers the individual to, to live however they want to live. Uh, but if you really think about that, that kind of love is actually a much lesser uh, form of love. And in fact, it's more of a superficial kind of love. Um, it can even be the very opposite of love, namely being indifferent. Do whatever you want, I don't care. Right? The idea that you're given this permission to do whatever you want to do is an idea that can only exist if the people around you were entirely indifferent to you. Right? That's more of an isolation than a liberation. <laughs> Truly caring for someone has to include the ability to issue an appropriate timely warning when it's necessary. And being truly cared for means you're able to receive that as well. You're open to receiving that. And according to the Bible, therefore, true love isn't just something that flatters you. True love warns you as well. And the passage we're looking at today is one one glimpse into the author, the apostle's love for the church. And I, so I hope we'll approach uh, this passage that way. Despite it being one of the most challenging passages in the Bible, uh, I think the most important thing is that we approach it with this understanding that the author's purpose is to give us something that benefits us out of his love for us, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It, this is God's love for us. And so you see that uh, the, this apostle is being very pastoral and giving us uh, not only indicatives, meaning uh, here's what's right, here's what's true, here's what's you know, good. Along with that, he gives us plenty of imperatives, and that is, where do we go from here? What are we supposed to do? How can we respond? Okay. So here's how I've outlined uh, today's sermon. One, the author gives us descriptions of an apostate. Two, he gives us distinctions between an apostate and a true believer. And three, he gives us directions for believers to follow. Okay? Descriptions, distinctions, and directions. All right. Point number one, descriptions of an apostate. Uh, verses four through six says this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, when you first read that, that sounds a whole lot like you can act, someone can actually lose their salvation, right? And then you begin to wrestle with, immediately with the truism that most of you have heard before, and that is once saved, what? Always saved. How are you supposed to reconcile these, these two ideas? And this is where it's so important for us to keep in mind the principle that the Bible must be interpreted through the Bible. Okay? Meaning one part of Scripture will not contradict another part of Scripture. So you have to take the entirety of Scripture into account and harmonize it. So remember what Jesus says in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Okay, that's abundantly clear. No one can snatch God's people out of his hand. Or take this passage from Romans 8 as another example. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Same principle. Nothing will be able to separate us. Not even your failures, not even your shortcomings, not even your backsliding, not even your sin addiction. Nothing can separate you from the love of your Father. Okay, so when we look at the entirety of Scripture, and I've just taken only two to show you, it's clear. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Okay, but, but listen, okay, listen to, to this. What these passages confirm for us is this, that once you are saved, you're always saved. Okay. It's not once you appear to be saved, always saved, once you are indeed saved, always saved. Apostasy is not something that's possible for those who are actually, truly saved. It's only possible for those who only appear, appear to be saved when they're really not. Okay. All right. What does it mean to just appear to be saved? And our author gives us a few descriptions of such a person. Um, first, you see this in verses 4 and 5, this language about tasting. Okay. So verse 4 says, In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. And then verse 5, And have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Okay, what's the significance of that? See, even in our culture today, um, if you take the example of wine tasting, okay, and I'm not like a super wine person, but uh, a lot of times when I see wine experts uh, taste the wine, they let it sort of swim around, right, in their mouth for a bit, and they spit it out. That's tasting. You can do that with the Word of God. You can taste the truthfulness of it. You can taste the, the graciousness of it. You can taste the timelessness of it, and you're like, that's good. And then spit it out. Um, it's tasting, but not ingesting, without adding any value to your real life. You can do that with the Word of God. And his saying, there are people in church who do that all the time with the Word of God. Um, we had a brother earlier this year who got baptized uh, and f who was for several years, right? He's been coming to our church and, and he's enjoyed the experience of coming to our church. He's taken part in our community. He always appreciated, expressed his appreciation for the teaching he's received. But he, it wasn't until after a couple years later, right, earlier this year, that he actually got saved and um, wanted to make his faith public um, by receiving the sign of the covenant, sign of baptism. 
So what does that mean? Think about what that means. That means um, there was a period of time when he was with us, right, in the church, when he was tasting the goodness of the gospel, uh, he was partaking in our community, but not having ingested it down to his heart. He saw that it was good, but it, was, it didn't really transform him, in other words, not during those years. And praise God, he came to a point where he wasn't simply uh, tasting the gospel. He came to a point, by God's grace, where he was ingesting it for himself as well. And, and I think there were actually people who were surprised at that point. Um, wow, I thought he was a Christian all along. I didn't know he wasn't a Christian when he got baptized. Um, but see, that's because you can't really tell in appearance sometimes. See, this is also why the command the psalmist gives us in Psalm 34 is not simply to taste, but to taste and see. Taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Perceive it for yourself, truly. You know, not with your physical eyes seeing, but seeing with your, your heart and your mind going, ah, I, I see it. I see it now. That's spiritual understanding, not just intellectual and not just emotional, but spiritual. And that's one description of an apostate who merely dwells on the intellectual and even relational communal aspect of the gospel without diving into the spiritual aspect of the gospel for himself or herself. It's someone who tastes without seeing, tastes without ingesting. Okay, let's highlight the differences just a little bit more with the help of the author by pointing to the distinctions between an apostate and a believer, a true believer. Okay, That's, this is the second point, distinctions between an apostate and a believer. One of the phrases uh, in our passage today that really gets people, gets them confused, is this phrase in verse 4, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Okay, When people hear that, when people hear have shared in the Holy Spirit, they tend to think that's got to be legit. That's, you can't be not a true Christian and have that phrase apply to you. Having, been, having shared in the Holy Spirit. That's got to be a saved person, right? But what does it really mean in the Bible to share in the Holy Spirit? Again, interpret the Bible with the Bible. Um, the Greek word for the word share, metakos, literally means to be a companion or a partner. And interestingly, it's totally distinct from that other word that the apostles frequently use to describe the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Christian, which is pimplome, meaning to be filled, filled with the Holy Spirit. Not to be a companion of the Holy Spirit, but to be filled by the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? The Holy Spirit is not meant to be some companion who exists outside of you, who influences you from the outside, externally. The Holy Spirit, at least when it comes to a true child of God, was meant to dwell within you and fill you and transform you from the inside. It's almost like the difference between being a neighbor to the Holy Spirit and being yourself the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, two examples in the Bible that highlight this, one from the old, one from the new. King Saul 
in the Old Testament was described as a man um, to whom the Spirit of God came upon. The Spirit of God came upon him time and time again, and, and then he would be used towards God's purposes. But he ultimately rejects God and is rejected by God. And in the New Testament, you have, of course, Judas Iscariot, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who performed signs, miracles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet he becomes a traitor. Uh, these were people who shared in the Holy Spirit and still ended up rejecting God. So the distinction can be put like this. The, the apostate merely draws the benefit of standing on the sidelines with the Holy Spirit, benefiting from some perhaps genuine spiritual encounters, spiritual experiences, charismatic experiences, whereas true believers have the Holy Spirit living inside them. And that's something that manifests not through spiritual gifts, but through spiritual fruits. Fruits. You can have all kinds of gifts, and Jesus can still say to you on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you, Matthew 7. But if you bear spiritual fruit, you're truly a child of God who's been born again, with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you, Galatians 5. So where should your focus be? Spiritual gifts or spiritual fruits? Fruits, right? And what's the difference? Uh, what are some other differences? Fruit is mostly internal, whereas gifts are mostly external. Uh, here's another difference. Gifts show up immediately. Right? They're, they're very immediately um, visible. G uh, fruits show up very slowly. It takes a long time for spiritual fruit to show up. Uh, it takes years for you to realize, I've grown in cultivating the fruit of patience. Okay? Remember that story I tell you? You know, I told you guys before when I asked Lynn three years into our marriage, um, hey, have I, have I grown in my patience? And she said, yeah, about this much. Remember that? And I celebrate that because that's still, there's, there's still movement, right? There's a, there's a pulse. Spiritual fruit is slow and therefore boring and it's mundane. It's, it's every day. It's repetitive takes commitment. Spiritual gifts are exciting, it's immediate, it's visible and tangible, but it doesn't prove that you're saved. That's another difference between an apostate and a, and a true believer. An apostate shows no fruit. And this is what we see in our passage today in verses 7 and 8 about the good land that produces fruit versus the cursed land that produces thorns and thistles. And, and you know what's really interesting about these two lands is they both get rained. Right? They both receive the blessing of rain, but not both are fruitful. Right? So even now, as the word of God is being sown to all of you, some will bear fruit and some will not, depending on how you are receiving this. Fruitfulness is the key to distinguishing between an apostate and a believer. Another way I think you can think about it is this. It's also kind of like the difference between dating someone versus being married to them. Uh, imagine this, this hypothetical conversation between a, a man and a woman. 
I, I gave this some effort. I haven't seen a lot of soap operas, so you have to bear with me here. Let's say the woman says to the man, hey, I'm leaving you. And the man's like, what, why? What's wrong, what's the problem? And the woman says, I just, I just don't love you anymore. What, what do you mean you don't love me anymore? What about all these years we've been together? Everything we've been through, all that we've shared. What about all of that, all the things that we've shared? Oh, that, that's when I was still your girlfriend, but I'm moving on. You're now a part of my past, my memory, and it doesn't carry any more weight with me. And the man can say, how can, you, how can you say that? We're practically living as husband and wife. To which the woman can say, ah, but you see, we never were husband and wife. And should be right. Should be absolutely right. When it comes to salvation, the Bible is very clear. The reality of salvation is a reality that pertains only to the bride of Christ. Only to the bride of Christ. Only those who are wedded to him. In other words, you can't date Jesus and think that you're married to him. You can't have a dating level commitment and think you have a marital relationship with Christ. You can think that, but you'd be wrong. You can even look like you're married. But if you're not spiritually united to Christ by faith, by totally surrendering yourself to Him, trusting in Him alone for your salvation, then it's not real. At the end of the day, your relationship to Jesus can end up being a thing of the past, a distant memory. Remember the story I told you about my elementary school teacher who had a profound influence on me as a Christian, really shaped my faith, who later came out as a self-professing atheist. And to him, his Christian faith and what I saw of it in the past, for him, it's just a thing of the past. It's, it's past memories. It's not a current reality. It's almost like how I talk about my life in Florida. Um, I, had a, I had a good friend of mine who knew me from Florida ask me recently, so, so have you settled in Georgia now? Like, is that, your, is that your home? And I said, yeah, we're settled here. We, we love it here. We love our church. We love the community. We love the, the H-marts. Uh, and it dawned on me as I shared that, that my life in Florida even though back then was my only way of life. That was it. It has now become just a collection of memories. Okay? For both Lynn and I, Florida as a whole has become for us a memory, not a current reality. To some people, their, encounter, their experience of God is just a distant memory, not a current reality. And I don't mean that as if if you have fond memories of Jesus, that's a, somehow a bad thing. I don't, that's not what I'm saying. That's great. But if that's all you have, what the author of Hebrews is warning you about is the possibility that you might be this land that's not bearing fruit. 
What about this rain that's been pouring upon your land this past Sunday and the Sunday before that, even today, as you open up God's Word? What about the seeds that are being sown now? Okay. At some point, you've you got to stop referring back to what happened 10 years ago at a youth retreat or five years ago on a mission trip as your last fruitful encounter with God. The question is not whether you have God in your distant memory, in your distant past. The question is, is God in your reality now? And, and that's also one thing that can distinguish between an apostate and a believer. An apostate only sees his relationship to Christ as a thing of the past. But for a believer, it's a current pursuit. I'm pursuing it. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It means I am heading in that direction of drawing closer and closer to Christ. Or as James put it, I still hear him knocking on my door. Is there a pulse today? Or is it a postcard from the past? I had a season not too long ago myself when I was feeling really, really dry spiritually. Um, and I felt like I haven't been hearing from God or His Word uh, other than you know, doing sermon prep and things like that. Um, I didn't really feel like I was having a personal encounter with God's Word. So I, I got my uh, journaling Bible and I opened it up and I just randomly picked a short book in the Bible. I picked Philippians. And I started uh, with a prayer, which I wrote down. Um, I asked myself, you know, what is, what is the most sincerest prayer I can pray right now? Because I really need something from God. Um, and here's what I wrote um, in my journal. Um, I said, I wrote, if for the rest of my life I know nothing else, I must know you, God, and your salvation. If for the rest of my life I know nothing else, I must know you, God, and your salvation. So please speak to me through your word. I, I really need to hear from you. That was my prayer. And then one verse at a time, I, I began to meditate on each verse, and, and God began to, I felt like he was reaching me from those pages, from those verses, and I started writing my response to each of them. And then, and then I, f I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a pulse it's like I was being rehabilitated. I was being rehabilitated, spiritually speaking, and, and re-entering a diet that I've, that I've neglected for so long. Some of you need to do that right now. Some of you need to do that today. Go to God's Word with a very sincere prayer, hungering for actually something to be sown and bear fruit in your heart today. You need to go to him with that kind of desperation. That's what the author is inviting you into. This, you see, this warning here is not meant to scare away people who might be worried, oh, I might be an apostate. This is to draw those people in, to point you to how you can identify yourself as a true believer. Pursue that life of a true believer. Okay. Now, there's more he gives to the believers to pursue. There are directions he gives us, very pastoral directions he gives us. But before we go there, let me just kind of hit a checkpoint here. Um, I think some of you 
right? Here, online, wherever. Maybe 20% of you, two out of 10 people, might be wondering, uh, wait, but what if I really am a non-believer? Right, I was baptized and all that, but I had a good phase with God. But at this point, what if I am an apostate? What if I am just a believer or, or, or someone who trick, is tricking myself into thinking that I'm a believer? What's the point of me following these directions meant for believers if I'm not even 100% sure that I am a believer? Okay. And, and that, can, that kind of doubt can be caused by a, a lot of factors. Perhaps you're, there's unrepentant sin, you've been away from community too long, there's intellectual issues that you're, you're wrestling with. But here's the bottom line answer to your question and that is you cannot think your way out of this question about your salvation you will never think your way out of this problem nobody thinks their way into Christianity okay. the way in is not by thinking harder and harder and harder and coming to this sort of mountaintop where you've reached this perfect, precise, intellectual, mental certainty. How do you get in if not by thinking hard? It's by believing. You don't get into Christianity by thinking and brainstorming, but by believing. Uh, yesterday, I, I, I got to officiate a wedding uh, this is the second Corona wedding. Um, I had the privilege of walking through pre-engagement counseling and premarital counseling with this couple and I officiated their wedding. It was beautiful, it was small, it was distance, it was safe. Um, and I made the same point that I always make at weddings. Uh, that is, the ultimate thing that keeps two people together in marriage is neither intense, passionate feelings, nor high level of intellectual certainty. Both of those things, right, high passion, high, high intellectual certainty, they can fluctuate depending on seasons and circumstances, and if your marriage is going to be based on one of those things, you're, you're on shallow grounds, you're building your house on sand, you're in trouble. What really keeps two people together in permanent union is the vow it's the promise which says, I'm choosing to be with you for life, whether feelings are high or low, whether in times of certainty or uncertainty, till death do us part. That promise is the glue. Okay? And along with that, your faith in each other's promise. Right? So, okay, then what is this main work that needs to be done? That, that always needs to take place within a marital relationship. What is the main work, the primary work? The primary work in any marriage is believing the promise. It's not intensifying your feelings. It's not trying to reach some intellectual certainty. It's believing the promise again. Being reminded of the promise again, which would in turn rekindle your feelings and increase your level of certainty. Here's what Jesus says to the Israelites who are wondering about their salvation and asked, what must we do to be saved? And Jesus says this to them in John 6, 29. 
This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work is to believe. Okay. The work of God is to believe in him. In him. It's not working enough. It's not feeling enough. It's not thinking hard enough until you get in. It's believing in Jesus. Okay. And that's the first directive. That's directive number one. Believe, don't disbelieve. Believe in the promises made by your bridegroom, your Savior, and your Lord, who said he will give you eternal life and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Believe him when he says that. Don't dwell on your thoughts. Don't dwell on your feelings. Don't dwell on your track record. Dwell on his promise. Believe in him. That's directive number one. You take the first step by believing, and that's your way of saying yes and I do to his proposal to you. You accepting his vows by faith, and then holding on to that by faith. And if you're tempted to say, but I'm, I'm such a sinner, I'm sick, I have so many sin issues, issues you won't believe, believe him when he says in Mark 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came for you. Or if you're thinking, my life is just too big of a mess. No, no one would want to enter this mess. Right? Believe him when he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The condition is not, hey, clean up your house. The only condition is open the door. Let me in. If you're thinking, I've wasted too many opportunities, too many years of my life, I can't be made new again. I've wasted too much. Believe him when he says, I am making all things new. This is how you draw near. This is how you get in, by believing. Okay. Please remember that. You cannot think or feel your way into Christianity. Nobody gets in that way. We believe our way in. Okay. And if you take that first step, then the other steps naturally follow. For example, this incredibly encouraging verse, verse 9, becomes your, your life verse. Verse 9 says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay? Notice the, the distinction here between those who've fallen away and you. Their case versus your case. And who are you? The beloved. Beloved by your heavenly Father. And your brother Jesus Christ who chose you, who adopted you, who saved you. It is those who believe the gospel, those gracious words of Jesus that you just heard, those are the beloved. And for those of us who believe in him, we can feel sure of better things. You and I can be sure of better things. What things? Things that belong to salvation. This means when you take the first step, the first piece of direction to believe, do the work of believing, which is really no work on your part at all. It's a very passive work to believe. Then the second directive is enjoy this, celebrate this salvation. 
be short, feel short of better things and restore the joy of your salvation. And then, verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Okay. If you have believed and you have celebrated the goodness of God, right? step one and step two. Here's step three. Show your love in response. And by the way, it's got to be in that order. Right? Your, love, your loving other people and serving other people must be fueled by God's love for you. If God's love that fuels you, it's, it's there, it's filling your tank, your love for others will never turn into bitterness and, and, and disappointments and not being reciprocated. Getting that order wrong is a lot of times the reason behind spiritual burnout and exhaustion. You must first rest in God's love. You must be believing. Believe and celebrate and then serve. Believe, celebrate, and serve. And so this is why I always tell our newcomers, you know, when they come, come to our church and visit us and they sit down and ask me about um, what should I be doing or um, are you going to ask me to do membership? I always say, just worship with us. Just worship. Work on the believing and the celebrating and the, the serving part and the membership part will figure itself out. Believe and celebrate what you believe. And then, and then, serve. Give. Respond in love. And the final piece of direction is this. It's found in verses 11 to 12. More so in verse 12, where it says, Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, you have to have faith and patience. Now, uh, let, me, let me show this to you because this is so easy to miss. Faith is believing, right? So did you connect the dots there? The directive at the end to have faith ties in with the initial directive to believe. It's literally saying, go back to step one. Step number four is go back to step one. And I cannot not mention Brian McKnight's classic song, Back at One at this point, right? One, you're like a dream come true. Two, just want to be with you. Three, because it's plain to see you're the only one for me. And four, what's four? Repeat steps one through three, right? Faith and patience means exactly that. Go back to one and repeat. Remember, the mundane and, and, the, and the boring nature of bearing spiritual fruit is repetition. Go back to that step. Believe and then celebrate and serve in that order. And believe some more. Celebrate some more and serve some more. And believe some more and celebrate some more. I think there are two things that, and I'll close with this, I think two things that tend to keep people from entering this journey, this cycle, this race. Um, it's often a season of busyness or a season of bitterness. You're too occupied or you're too hurt. Uh, you're, you're pursuing something that you think is more important and worthwhile than pursuing God. And, and that's the very definition of spiritual blindness, according to the Bible. You've got to open your eyes and see there, there's nothing more important to you than your pursuit of God. And perhaps you've been hurt by someone at church or uh, someone who's 
somehow associated with Christianity, and, and you've been transferring those feelings to God. And all I can say for now is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Uh, don't let these seasons cause you to drift farther away from Christ. Let these seasons instead draw you closer to Him. Accentuate your need for Him as you see the answer is not found in the world. The answer is not found in any individual human being. It's found in Jesus who is better. Jesus is still better. So look to Him and let Him lead you down this track. Follow this track that He's laid out for you. Believe. Celebrate. Respond in love and serve and repeat. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we pray for your wisdom in receiving your, your word. We pray uh, you guide us as we embark on living out this word. Uh, may we be fruitful. Uh, may we bear fruit from the word that you have just sown into our hearts. Um, if we're struggling with our thoughts, if we're struggling with our feelings, if we're struggling with certain past experiences, Lord, Help us to live not by sight, but by faith. Help us to enter into or re-enter into this relationship with you by the one thing you've required of us, and that is our faith. Help us to trust in you and your son who's promised us that he will enter in, that he will sit with us, that he will not turn us away, he will not be scared away by our sins, but he would simply come in and have fellowship with us. If we hear him knocking today, Lord, would you empower us to open our doors and let him in? Would you help us to walk with him now? And although we may not be ready to run yet, help us walk. If we're not ready to walk, help us crawl, but just help us to get in the right direction. Help us to start this race at some point so we will not be like the apostates who fall away, but we will be held fast by you and your Son and his promises. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.